0: when you talk about labor, you're talking about what is the productive model? Um, and if we're just talking about splitting the pie, um, which, is, which is really what a lot of um, consumption struggles are about, hmm. then we, we miss the question of, well, how is the pie being made in the first place? Um, and that's when, you, if you want to talk about a national project, that's what animates a national project.
1: Hey there! Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast. At the end of the end of history, what comes next? Did anybody buy anything I don't know. I'm Alex Hochuli, and today we're taking a global look at cities and the urban struggles that animate national and municipal politics. We're discussing social movements around housing, rent, transport, and the right to the city. First, we're talking about cities in the global north. The first bit is us talking to Ben Bradlow about cities competing with one another to attract capital. Then you're going to hear a short interview with David Adler. David writes on urban development, focusing specifically on rent, which is the topic of the first 20 minutes. If you want to hear more from David Adler, check him out on episode 40 on centrist authoritarianism. But then the bulk of this episode is going to take a broader perspective on urban politics. Everyone now knows that for the first time in human history, a majority of the planet lives in cities. The former third world used to be marked by its rural character, but no longer. So the global south has rather become like the global north, that is urban. But here's the question. At the same time, are the cities of Europe and North America becoming increasingly like those of the global south, that is, more segregated, extremely unequal, and with greater social exclusion than we've become accustomed to in the post-Second World War period? Joining us to take a wide-ranging look at these questions is Ben Bradlow, a PhD candidate in sociology at Brown and an expert on cities and urbanism, currently doing a comparative study of Johannesburg and Sao Paulo. One final note before we get started. We're now adding recommended readings in the show notes, as many of you have requested it. There's stuff in there from this program's guests, as well as articles and essays that touch on the ideas of this podcast. Glad to have you all with us. And if at the end of this program, you've liked what you've heard, why not share it with your friends and enemies? All right, so we're here to talk cities and urban struggles in the global north and south. I'm Alex Hohili, and I'm joined by Ben Bradlow, as well as Alpha Bunga Bunga regulars Phil Cunliffe and George Hoare. Uh, so today we're recording this on Tuesday the 17th of July, which is, um, if you want to wear Prime Day, uh, it's a thing that Amazon has made up uh, to have sales. Um, and this is notable for two reasons. One, because Spanish Amazon workers have gone on strike today with workers in Germany, Poland, Italy, France and elsewhere responding to a call for a transnational strike and also walking out in solidarity. But it's also notable for the fact, I think, that uh, U.S. cities have recently been falling over themselves to attract Amazon so that the corporation would set up its second headquarters in its municipality. Um, And I guess it's notable because it's not an isolated incident. Uh, The so-called world city is uh, mainly distinguished by the fact that it tries to attract and is able to attract global capital. Um, and Ben, I know y- you on Twitter were, were quite critical of this. Um, any thoughts on, on this lovely day, Prime Day?
2: Yeah, so I, I'm interested in the Amazon issue in part uh, just because I'm interested in this type of competition between cities that that you were alluding to, um, but also because... The, the city where I live is has been involved in this competition um, as part of a joint bid between uh, my city of Somerville and the city of Boston, which has become um, shortlisted amongst the 20 cities that Amazon's still considering I, I mean many people know that the the cities that have made bids have offered varying degrees of uh Tax incentives and other types of financial incentives to try to attract Amazon, which I think is just fundamentally horrific to give up the public purse um, for a type of development that's really unlikely um, to benefit many of the cities that are benefit any uh, municipal area in the country, but definitely not the vast majority of the cities that have actually put in bids, and the reason why, is most of the cities that have put in bids are cities that have major affordability crises, especially in terms of uh, housing and access to land. Um, And they're also cities where municipal governments are already quite constrained um, with the degrees to which they're able to intervene to deal with these crises.
1: Okay, here are George, Phil and myself talking to David Adler about rent.
3: Uh, so David, you work with Generation Rent, which examines issues connected to Britain's housing crisis. And anybody in London will uh, have firsthand experience of this. Um, before we talk about some of your proposed solutions, could you tell us a little bit about how Britain's housing crisis sits alongside other housing crisis, crises? Um, just provide, I guess, some some context for us, perhaps?
4: So I think Britain's housing crisis is a pretty extreme case, or I should not even qualify it. Britain's housing crisis is an extreme case of what happens when you open the floodgates to a kind of speculative investment in your housing market, and you really turn homes into investment vehicles. Uh, So from 1971 to today, or to last year, I should say, the value of real estate in this country went from 60 billion total across all of Britain to 6 trillion pounds. So it's a hundredfold increase uh, adjusted for inflation. And so you can imagine what happened in that process, a lot of people, I, I call this a, dual, a dualization process. Many, many people got extremely wealthy. Those are the insiders, the lucky people who benefited in the asset, asset bubble, or who continue to benefit from the asset bubble. There were the outsiders, people who were locked out of that process of wealth accumulation. Uh, and for those people who were locked out, they, they, they were, we might say, doubly screwed. So not only did they lose out on the gains of their neighbors. There's a great quote from Kindleberger that uh, nothing nothing is more upsetting than seeing your neighbor get rich. So not only do they have to watch their neighbors get rich, but they also had to suffer intensely in Britain's extremely unregulated private sector. So Britain, almost more than any other European country, has uh, virtually no protections in its rental sector. Very few rights. There's no minimum tenancies. And... um, you can be turfed out of your home for no reason under what's under Section 21 of the Housing Act of Um, So here in Britain, we're reaching kind of record highs of Section 21 evictions. We're reaching record highs of rough sleeping. Very few protections for people who are struggling in the private rental sector, uh, where, you know, in a place like London, you have tenants playing upwards of 70 percent of their income on rent. For really, really bad conditions. So there's a, there's a big fight happening to, to transition to a more humane, you might call it continental model of renting. But it's very hard, in particular, given that London is kind of structurally lit hooked, you know, sort of addicted to we might sort of sort of klepto real estate capital. So this country runs on and, and is kept afloat by very, very dark money laundering that's happening through its real estate sector. And so it creates a real, really intense kind of political economic puzzle in terms of how do you unwind uh, and and put an end to uh, that money laundering without sending the country into a kind of recession, putting people into negative equity. So you can see how uh, the fears of a deflationary spiral are propping up asset prices and screwing over those outsiders uh, year on year on year.
1: Um, David, so one of the, one of the solutions proffered to this is you know build more houses and so people can own their own houses. Your solution is renting rather than owning. Why is that? So,
4: yes, this is my big heterodoxy, and if I if I can plug, I, I'm writing a book about as much.
1: Go for it. Plug away.
4: This renters utopia, but I'm, I'm I shouldn't plug it too hard because I'm quite a quite a bit away from, from finishing <laughs> it. But you know the way I see it the is Finnish,
5: that- the finish the finished book utopia. <laughs> yes,
4: exactly. <laughs> so the way I see it is that uh, it's, the cult of ownership is what got us into this mess, uh, and it's not going to be what got us out of it. So you know, ownership was was promised as this great uh, route to emancipation, uh, and that's not that, that's true in France, it's true in Britain, it's true in the United States, it's true in Australia, and it's true because of structural adjustment programs led by the IMF, the World Bank around the world. So. You know, this great ownership lie is, is one of the most foundational economic models that we have, that home ownership is going to be the way in which we can boost growth, boost prosperity, boost stability, etc. Now, that, that's been a lie in two crucial ways. Uh, in one crucial way because it screwed over the people who bought into it, namely the homeowners that after the crash of 2008, uh, we're suffocating under debt and we're foreclosed 5 million foreclosures in the United States alone since 2007 and, you know, 600,000 in Spain. Um, and it screwed over people who were who were locked out of that process, who never had access to that ownership dream. So in a word, it's created huge levels of inequality and from a more economistic perspective, huge levels of, of inefficiency um, because the, the rush to create new homes and to speculate on that property market has siphoned a ton of money away from what we might call the real economy toward speculative, really unproductive investments in real estate. I mean, real estate really is a kind of great sucking sound in the British economy uh, and in others as well. So my argument is very simply that social rent can can get us out of that trap, that we need to decommodify de- housing the same way decommodify our other sort of fundamental rights. I mean, housing is the only good where, where governments say we need to increase the price of Prop up the price of housing. You know, they would never say we need to prop up the price of of bread or phones <laughs> or shoes. So, right. so something something's really 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 odd there. But I think it's also a timely moment to be making that argument because you know most of us have been locked out of that great homeownership dream or what I would call homeownership lie. And so we've been we're stuck in the private rental sector, and uh, you know we're the generation that has to kind of make the most of that. We, we've been exposed both to the to the great harms of living precariously in a parental sector, but also to its great benefits. You know, one thing, one, one piece of great ownership lies that it actually makes you more free. But no, it doesn't. You have to own a house. You're shackled to that property and to maintaining it. Renting also is a way of freeing us from the needs of ownership. To being able to be more flexible, to move around the world, to engage in, and move where where we to places to communities where we want to engage, um, so uh, we, we, you know reengaging the notion of social ownership not just as a way of reducing inequality but also as a way of emancipating ourselves from the need to hoard, or to collect, to buy, and to own. I think is something that we need to highlight. That, you know.
5: To close then, would you be able to link different attitudes to housing to different political positions for us? To what extent does the housing question in the UK capture the political kind of thorn, the thorn, the problems of our era? I was trying to avoid saying contradictions because I didn't want it to be too, uh, too, <laughs> too obvious. What's wrong with contradictions?
3: Guess... <laughs> contradictions is a, is a great word.
5: Okay. Okay. <laughs> Say it again. How far
3: with does
5: how far does well, the housing question in the UK encapsulate the contradictions of the current order there? I said it.
4: I think uh, to answer your question straight up, very well. So this is this is the core of of my academic research. Actually, is is looking at the the political economy of of Britain's housing crisis, and the main argument that I make in my academic work is that housing markets are broadly polarizing. So as house prices rise as we as Britain undergoes house price inflation, we see insiders and outsiders moving in opposite directions. Insiders become more conservative with less desire for welfare spending, less desire for government intervention, and renters, outsiders, become more encouraging welfare spending and move to a more radical position in terms of their preferences for government intervention. And I think that this is exactly what we saw in the general election in 2017. We saw homeowners continue to move, especially older and wealthier homeowners move in a more, a much more conservative direction to protect the value of their asset, which in this country has become also their pension. It's a country where uh, the Bank of England, the chief economist of the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, has said that property is a better bet for retirement than your own pension. So we have a political and economic system that's, that's premised on you hoarding wealth in your asset. And we saw that. Private renters who are moving to a much more radical position, by dint of their exclusion from that process, coming out in record numbers to vote for an anti-austerity program that would in- build social ownership and encourage their, their their inclusion. So, you know, I think that that the housing market is is, is a good example uh, of of this of the polarization of economic outcomes and the role of economic inequality today. You know, I think if you look at the housing market, you can really understand. The, the generational conflicts, the, the class con- conflicts, uh, and the geographical conflicts taking place in Britain today. Um, and so I'm working on a few papers linking sort of Brexit to, to house price inflation linking the 2017 uh, outcome to, to house price inflation, so I'll, I'd be happy to keep you updated on those. But uh, you know the, the basic premise is that we need to, and where I take my political inspiration from, is to build on that sense of exclusion, not to repeat the mistakes of the past and try to, re- to to you know get young people to buy their own properties, but to, to mobilize that radicalism, to take, to take advantage of the sense that, you know, young people have been exposed to, the, to that great life ownership and to build a new economic model and to build a kind of new mode of socialized, post-capitalist property ownership from there.
1: Okay, and now it's back to Ben Bradlow for The Main Dish. So as we're going to look at cities in the global north and the south, and maybe see if we can't draw some generalizations from this, uh, I wanted to ask you about your own research, because you look at democracy and inequality comparing Johannesburg, South Africa, and Sao Paulo, Brazil. Would you be able to give us an overview of this and maybe also pull out some key comparative points? Like, are the challenges facing Sao Paulo and Joburg the same as those in Jakarta or Lagos or Mumbai or something?
0: So, so yeah, I mean, the way that I uh, approach the study of cities is that the politics at the city level really matters. So, you know, cities are always considered, and rightly so, as a subsidiary level of government. Um, and so often what happens in cities is read off of what's happening uh, nationally nationally. But actually, we see a lot of um, variation in cities that otherwise you might expect to look similar um, given what's happening at the national level. So the way the the kind of setup for my research is that Brazil and South Africa had very similar conditions for transition to democracy in terms of the social base that was um, driving the tr- that transition, and the key elements that I think about are the what has been referred to as a social movement unionist alliance of a new independent trade union federation, uh, cultural groups, uh, progressive religious groups, and um, neighborhood and social movements uh, in urban Areas and the heart of that alliance in both Brazil and South Africa uh, was in São Paulo and uh, Joburg to a large extent in terms of what was the, what city was was most important for driving that alliance, which in both cases was aligned to um, a new programmatic party of the left. Um, and so I take that and say, well how capable has uh, each city been in addressing the demands that those movements were making around access to urban services after transition to democracy? And basically I'm looking at, well, how do movements transform state structures, but also then how do state structures transform movements? So it's not just um, a a linear path. And um, in terms of the material, outcomes that I look at in Sao Paulo and Joburg, Sao Paulo has done much better at delivering uh, public goods like housing and sanitation networks as well as um, public transportation networks um, than Joburg. And in Sao Paulo, you also see a degree of perpetual renewal in the movement sector that's both antagonistic to the state and reinforcing of state capacities to deliver Um, to the demands that movements are making. Whereas in Johannesburg, you have a real atomization of the the movement sector and you don't really have any citywide movements for any uh, urban goods and very high degrees of uh, localized and atomized protest. Right. So, Um,
1: uh, it, to what extent, I guess, then, because it follows on from this, it, are city politics actually national politics uh, in these places? Mm-hmm. To what extent are the, the contestations over the right to the city, over transport, over housing, and so on, actually things that become played out on on the national political scale?
0: So Sao Paulo is a great case where you can see how that happened. The, it, the last five years, it happened in a bit of a twisted way. As, as Alex uh, will be very familiar with, um, where you had protests that started about a transport fare hike um, that ended up being taken over by uh, a largely uh, middle and upper class coalition aligned to right-wing political parties that ended up uh, producing a lot of the, the social basis for impeaching uh the president of the Workers' Party, the PT, um, and really backing uh, a very politicized um, type of, quote-unquote, lawfare um, deployed in the name of anti-corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, in S- South Africa is a good counterexample where there there's a lot of urban protest in Joburg and in South Africa in general. But there's no organizational mechanism um, to actually transmit the the dynamism uh, and anger that you see at the very local neighborhood level to even the citywide scale, let alone um, a national scale. And that's created uh, opportunities for um, business elites, but also traditional rural elites um, to be much more influential in comparison um, to their urban activist counterparts in driving uh, national politics.
5: Could I just jump in there, Ben? This is Phil. Um, When you say Mm -hmm. there's no mechanism, what would what might that mechanism look like that would act as an effective counterpoint to um, traditional elites? In the in those contexts. So,
0: so um, you know, from from the left, I think that um, citywide housing movements uh, in places like Brazil, but not just in Brazil. Um, if you look at uh, some of the emergent left movements and parties in places like uh, Spain, um, even Greece for a brief moment, um, you see how movements that often organize around urban issues but are constituted at the city scale can begin to build up to larger scales. Um, From the right, I think a lot of people are still trying to interpret what happened in the Brazilian case, the exact organizational mechanism. Um, But it's clear that there are large organizations like... um, The Free Brazil Movement, uh, the MBL, that were able to transmit a lot of the street anger into the direction of supporting anti corruption and uh, right wing politics in Brazil.
1: So, I mean, um, maybe regular listeners might be a bit more familiar with the Brazilian cases. we've covered it in the past, but so as not to get too drawn mm-hmm. into the complications of Brazil specifically, uh, because it's a hell of a lot of complication. Mm. Um, yeah. One thing that would be interesting to draw out from that example of the street protests that emerge in Brazil, but which might have wider application, is this, is the question of transport, because... Um, I think I don't know who said it, but, uh, you know, the, if, if the if the fight for the democratization of the city in the 20th century uh, was housing, um, does transport play that role in the 21st, city, 21st century? I mean, especially if we take it as a given that there are um, slums and informal uh, forms of housing in city peripheries, if those already exist and you accept those, then the objective must surely be to connect them up uh, and to have access to transport as a primary sort of political objective.
0: That's that's an interesting hypothesis, though I don't I don't see yet anyway the evidence to support it, but I it, it seems plausible to me. But the reason why I think housing is much easier to mobilize around is that it's a good that's much a much easier to deliver, and b it's much more open to popular participation. Um, transportation. Is often uh, very technical and networked uh, type of infrastructure, and you, where you see it becoming salient um, as a mobilizing issue is where there's already a sufficient baseline network that exists and a sufficient cross-class uh, user base mm. for that network. Um, and I and Sao Paulo's, you know, Sao Paulo. It's a very car-driven city in a lot of ways, um, but you also have a lot of middle-class people who are using the public transportation network, even if it's only um, the, the subway system. And the protests that emerged around the transport fare were not just uh, poor people living in the periphery of Sao Paulo. Um, and so you had that cross-class user base that could mobilize around that issue. But I think in the growing urban centers of the South, especially in um, Africa and Asia, you just don't see the the degree of elaboration of the transport network that would lead me to expect that to be an immediately, uh, you know, best candidate for urban mobilization.
1: that's interesting. And I guess in a lot of these places, I mean, I think you've spoken before about uh, Johannesburg, where uh, the public uh, transport system is really actually quite privatized. It's private minibuses running around from one place to another. Um, And I think that's probably the case in a lot of megacities in the global south. Um, Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, with their own idiosyncrasies, but you know the idea that the 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 local government has a formal um managerial stake in a unified public transport system uh is relatively novel um Mm. in a lot of the um emerging and growing urban centers of the south
3: so just to pick up on this a a little bit i think so something phil and alex and i and this is george um by the way hello from One of the the world cities, London, and I can see just to paint lit, listeners a bit of a picture. I can see Canary Wharf out my window, as we're as we're doing this. Um, so the yeah, so we we were sort of talking about this a little bit. The global South, perhaps much maligned term, used to be defined by some at least by its rural character, but now it seems increasingly defined by the urban by its urban character, and particularly some of these cities which we've talked about and. Previous episodes of the podcast, Tehran, Istanbul, Sao Paulo, Mexico City, Lagos, Cairo, Mumbai, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess just to zoom out a little bit, do you think the this increasing pace of, of um, urbanization is shifting the way we think about this kind of global north-south divide as a whole? And I think particularly, you know, not to load too many questions on, but what do you think of the role of, the, of slums? So Mike Davis, this idea of um, urbanization without industrialization what role do you think that plays in defining this global north and south that we, that we that we might have
0: yeah i mean i i just used the language but i i am increasingly not particularly animated by it um, because i think that you, the the kinds of divides and inequalities um, that have been seen to characterize the urban so-called global South have a lot of analogs in, um, more industrialized countries as well. So I agree. I totally agree that urbanization with, without industrialization is very much a Southern, uh, phenomenon. Uh, but for, for example, if you want to talk about low state capacity with no democratic, uh, accountability or movements, uh, embeddedness leading to, um, you know, horrific service delivery outcomes. In the United States, I think you have one of the classic examples, which is contemporary Flint, Michigan, where you have a city that was taken over by the state government, the intermediate level of government. And, um, you know, the city is delivering poisoned water that nobody can drink for years at a time. Um, so, you know, in that sense, there's a slum-like character to life in Flint, Michigan. Urbanization um, without industrialization, uh, I think, is increasingly a global phenomenon. I mean, t- between deindustrialization in the north and no industrialization in the south.
1: Well, this, so this is, we is something are... that we've spoken about, um, I mean, privately, but before, Ben, about how, in some ways, the politics and societies of the North are becoming perhaps increasingly like those in the global South, or that the, the kind of sharp divides that we used to maintain are kind of becoming a little bit more blurred. And and regular listeners will be familiar with this topic as we've discussed it in the past. Um, and I guess uh, one, way of, one way of kind of drawing that out as well, um, one thing that occurred to me is that Uh, some kind of swanky new apartment buildings in high-rise apartment buildings in London. Um, And incidentally, high-rises used to only be associated with social housing or lower-income housing. And now you've got swanky new high-rises, which is a new thing for a city like London. Um, But in Mm -hmm. places like that, uh, in these new high-rises, you've got like poor doors, you know, you've got uh, separate entrances for areas of the new development, which are reserved for lower-income residents. And I mean, that just is obviously offensive to anyone with a sense of uh, of a democratic culture of a shared public space. But it also it did remind me that, you know, in Sao Paulo, this is hardly an unknown thing. Any building which is slightly older than, let's say, 20 years uh, will have service elevators and a social eleva- elevator. Um, nowadays, discrimination is banned by law. You're not allowed to discriminated into who goes into the social elevator and who goes into the service elevator. But, you know, this is still a, a visible form of segregation that's still there, or there's a legacy of that segregation. Um, and yet, you know, in, in some of the most developed advanced bits of uh, of the global North, uh, you're seeing a kind of replication of, of these sorts of forms of segregation. Yeah, I
0: think, that's, <laughs> I think that's right. I mean, I'm I'm involved in um, negotiating what's called a community benefits agreement with a large developer in my city um, that's, they're trying to turn it into a biotech downtown hub that's anticipated to be worth $1.5 billion. And that is the exact issue that's coming up with the the big high rise that's um, being planned in the first phase of this development. Is there going to be any public use for uh, the development, let alone um, integration of affordable units within the actual building that the developers uh, committed to as part of the structure. Mm. Um, so, so, so yeah. I mean, if, if you're saying urban, you know, urbanism and even the architecture of North and South are bearing. Uh, increasingly similar social realities. I think it's exactly right, um, but it's not. It doesn't always lead to the same political responses.
3: So actually, I, I had a, qu- a question that maybe follows on here, and it's um, how do you place the the Chinese model in this in this context? Because I think it seems there that they're these extremely strong state control over the movement of people has meant that they've um, the Chinese state has managed to prevent people moving um, en masse, although there's still a lot of, in, in, in that context, illegal migration into urban c- centers. So largely has, has avoided the problem of um, the creation of slums.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, and China has one of the most extreme forms of rationing access to public services since apartheid in South Africa which is the Hukou system. Yeah. Um, So, and, you know, South African apartheid state was reasonably efficient, but there's no state probably in world history that's been as efficient as the contemporary Chinese state. Um, So, you know, they've managed to avoid the issue of slums. They've also managed to be one of the few cases of contemporary uh, industrialization. Um, And they've sucked up a lot of, global industrialization mm.
1: um yeah it almost so feels like in a lot of these discussions that state... sorry what's that no no indeed I, I i was just um reinforcing your point that in a lot of these discussions about global inequality we almost have to take china out of the equation because it seems such a an important but particular case that it rather distorts the whole global picture
2: Well, I don't think
0: you need to take it out, but I think it it can be explained actually in the same terms that you would explain what's happening uh, in other places. But it it reminds us that the whole world is not converging to the same exact single point. Mm, mm. Uh, And that that the outcome can be different, but explained through the same kinds of mechanisms.
3: That's a good point. Our listeners will like that. It's uh, (laughs) very nice,
1: Um, I think to maybe move away from the global south and and move to certain struggles in the global north, uh, and then we can we can join up again at the end. Uh, it, it seems that I mean this is this is hardly a novel point, but conflicts over housing and rent have taken centre stage in all major cities uh, in the global north, practically. Um, and at the same time, and, and as part of a part of this dynamic, it feels like all major cities in the west. Seem to be moving away or becoming increasingly distant from their own hinterlands. I mean, I just as a personal note, I lived in London for twelve years, and over that period, which included the the, the sort of eight years after the two thousand eight crisis, um, where London was already very different to the rest of the country, and you know, about nearly a decade on from the two thousand eight crisis, it was a complete world away. Um, and this seems to be something that's that's happening. Everywhere, you know. I mean, and not just New York, but also you know Vancouver. Um, so I guess the 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 question is, how important do we think these um, questions of housing and rent are, um, especially as we were talking about as as you said before. You know, there's more capacity to mobilize around that issue in the global South. Is that the case in the global North?
0: Um, I think I think it is, and I think that the the British case. Uh, which is really driven by London, is quite an extreme version of this, Um, in part because London is just so dominant um, within the UK. Um, But there there is a bit of a political problem, because you are seeing um, more and more mobilization around, uh, affordability, which is really rent, um, in many uh, North American and Western European cities. But one of the one of the key the types of things that would really deal with the problem um, beyond the specifically urban interventions, things like um, rent controls. Um, massive new investments in public housing uh, in, ter- in terms of like the, the regional economics that would actually deal with this regional transport networks, um, you know, investing in previously uh industrialized or um, former agricultural centers. Um, it's, it's hard to build those politics that unite um, the hinterland with, the metropole. Hmm. So there, there are limits to what can be done just in the metropole. Um, and you know, attacking landlord rentierism is not, uh, at this, I haven't seen a case in North America or Europe where that's been able to really attract a significant group of people in the, in the hinterlands that, that, you know, could really build a political movement at the scale required to actually um, make those kinds of changes.
1: Yeah, and it certainly isn't coming from the top, because um, I think in most Western countries, you know, there isn't any politics which aims at having a sort of national project in any sense of the word. Um, so they're very happy to let the the sort of major cities, the metropoles surge ahead of the rest of the country, um, more interested in competing on yeah, the I global mean- international scale than, than they are in um, developing the country as a whole.
0: Yeah. And I wouldn't just cast that as an absence of a national project. There is a project and it's um, l- linked to a specific subset of urban populations. Hmm. Um, and, you know, like in the US, uh, one of the biggest groups that's that's financing the Democratic Party is uh, the real estate sector. And, you know, you, you can define that kind of broadly. So it's real estate developers plus lawyers plus accountants, you know, the whole ecosystem Mm. that drives uh, the real estate sector. This is one of the, the largest uh, donor bases of the democratic party. And so discussion of these issues is prevented from even uh, reaching the, the national agenda. So it's only at the city scale where people are even talking about the issue of rent Um, in, in, in other, in some European cases, it seems like uh, the discussion around rent has become a bit more nationalized, um, but, you know, the, the power of both uh, people who live in rural areas plus this, this more generalized uh, role of the development sector in financing the Democratic Party makes it particularly difficult in the U.S.
1: Yeah. And I mean, <clears throat> just take another example, I, I was just thinking this uh, on the way home before recording, that uh, it does make you a little bit nostalgic for the kind of urbanism of the 19th and 20th century. I mean, if you view it kind of vaguely rather than look too much at the specifics. But, you know, if you look at parks, for example, in London or New York, uh, it's almost amazing mm. that these things exist. Like, if you stop and think about it for a second, you've got these massive <laughs> unproductive spaces that people can just use freely like you can just go in there and use this space it's like it's mad that it exists um you know if you're attuned to how things are in the contemporary world um and i mean i think that's probably the reality in most cities of the global south now um that there are no real shared public spaces, or there's few um, moments of uh, mm-hmm. there, or th- maybe there's some moments in in the 20th century history of a sort of modernist vision of creating public spaces. But I contemporarily, I don't know of any uh, examples, um, and certainly in the global north, you don't have that. You know, if there is going to be a park built, it's going to be they're going to charge you entry. You know, that's that's the model. Um, and that's quite striking, but I think we obviously shouldn't get um, get weighed down by, by any nostalgia because that's not coming back. I mean, that particular configuration isn't coming back.
0: Yeah, well, it, that particular configuration isn't coming back, but you, I, I do think there's something to what you're saying, and it means some real revisionism around figures like Robert Moses in New York who's been vilified by uh, urbanists. For a long time, and for good reason, because he uh, basically displaced hundreds of thousands of non-white people in New York City. Um, but he, you know, he he was part of a generation of activist urban leadership that actually wanted to make, uh, you know, public amenities, which does not exist. But the the one lesson that I would take for um, our contemporary times is that there is a role for activist political re- leadership in um municipal government mm. and you you know the municipal state matters and that, that i guess that's the, the one key lesson that i'd take without getting too overly revisionist around the 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 work of these kind of um otherwise crazy madman types
1: <laughs> yeah so that's an interesting point which I guess isn't often made um and certainly isn't something that we often have discussed on this podcast but the importance of municipal politics because it's a kind of unsexy thing um that often small local movements but I guess um if you can change the character of municipal unsexy politics to you Alex. sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's that's right, to i mean
0: for you <laughs> no,
1: I'm not kink shaming here, you know. Um <laughs> you can find you can find municipal politics if you like. And um, that's cool. Um yeah. But I mean, the transformations that that can happen at that level um resulting from popular pressure from below might actually begin to to change things and and eventually uh, transmit to the national scale. I mean, I guess that's that's your proposition as it were. intellectually if not politically. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too too romantic about that. Um, I don't know, we're sticking on this metaphor, which I want to move away from. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not saying municipalism is the answer. I'm saying that the kinds of things that begin to mobilize people often are at the municipal scale and that municipal government is a key determining factor for where those mobilizations go. Mm. So it doesn't, you know, achieving change at the municipal level is never enough. Um, But it is a place where um, bigger things happen. And uh, actually Brazil is a fantastic case of that because the story of the PT and the story of many of the gains that the PT achieved nationally uh, under Lula and the first term of Dilma, were made possible by uh, a prior phase of the party where it was only in power in municipal governments and built the track record, capacity, and uh, connections with the movements that would eventually bring it to national power. And that, I think, you know, it's not like a, a, a recipe that you just implement anywhere. But it's the kind of dynamics that I think um, make municipal politics uh, promising for thinking about uh, more contemporary problems, um, which otherwise seem hopelessly constituted at national or even global scale.
1: Mm. That's really interesting. I'd to, um, maybe be to try to push you on being maybe a little bit more specific. Do you think there is a particular theme or area which takes center stage in that? I mean, we've mentioned transport um, and housing, sanitation, perhaps. Or do you think a broader umbrella, such as the right to the city, um, is something that is worth going with? Or is that too abstract?
0: I think there is there is some promise to the right to the city, but I also think it's pretty abstract. Um I mean, Brazil is one of the few places where it's made it, that language has made it into the formal sphere of politics, but it's really been struggles around more concrete uh, demands that have get, given some reality to an otherwise abstract concept like right to the city. The problem, the big problem with municipal politics only is that it's very hard to deal with uh, the question of labor um at the city scale uh i mean economy. It, 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 it's just it, rather at least in terms of municipal politics it's very difficult to intervene in questions around labor except at the margins um so you know that all that is to say worker organization whether it be in traditional trade unions or other kinds of forms of worker organization Aren't obsolete just because urban struggles around, um, you know, material goods uh, in the city are increasingly important. The the, the labor question remains central, and um, it's you know it, it may be the most articulated question as these kinds of struggles uh, scale up.
1: I think that's interesting because the a lot of the um, struggles around the city tend to end up being some form or another of consumer protests. Um, if it's around mm-hmm. rent, it's about the rent being too damn high, um, which is a good slogan, but maybe yeah. not the most effective politics um, around transport, around the cost of transport. Um, and so I guess it is hard to have, to gain the sort of leverage necessary for these movements. Um, with you know, as against political power that, uh, You know, people can be bought off uh, in consumer politics quite easily. And it's also hard to make long lasting, uh, durable networks uh, between consumers. They tend to be quite, quite um, sporadic and spontaneous comings together. You know, you can you can have a boycott which lasts for a short while, but um, it's hard to maintain that over a long period of time. Um, So I think you're right to draw attention, draw our attention to the to the role of labor. And I guess a a question for looking looking to the future is, you know, how do how do unite those struggles? Because I think those sometimes more short-lived consumer struggles are not irrelevant. But um, but I guess the question is, how do you join those things up?
0: Yeah, well, if I had an answer, then uh, I don't know, I feel like <laughs> other people would also have the answer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that's a million-dollar question. Um, and, you know, it's not just about labor. It's, you know, like like the good Marxists, so I, I know you all are. Uh, <laughs> when you talk about labor, you're talking about what is the productive model. Um, and if we're just talking about Splitting the pie, um, which is which is really what a lot of um, consumption struggles are about. Hmm. Then we, we miss the question of well, how is the pie being made in the first place? Um, and that's when, you, if you want to talk about a national project, that's what animates a national project.
1: That's a really brilliant point. I think tended on. Um, so thanks very much, Ben. It was lovely to have you on. Alright, that's it for this week. Thanks again to Ben Bradlow and to David Adler. So what are you going to listen to next? If you haven't checked them out yet, our past two episodes look at the concrete national politics of large countries in the semi-periphery, Colombia and Turkey. Our next two episodes coming up will deal with big ideas. First, we're taking a systematic look at how neoliberal heads have fallen off in the past two years. What's motivating the conspiracy theories, the Russophobia, the fear of populism, and more? That's the psychopolitics of neoliberal breakdown. Then in the second week of August, we're taking a deeper and more historical look at the contradictions of liberalism. Did liberalism really feature a unique dual birth, freedom and slavery conjoined at the hip? And if so, do freedom and anti-freedom continue to animate contemporary liberal ideas? All that to look forward to. Catch you later. Bye-bye.